News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Hi there, Harry Siegel. Hey. And it's another slow week in New York City, which is a ghost town, according to President Donald Trump. We had a 3% positivity rate on coronavirus tests for the first time in many weeks on Sunday. That's a very significant threshold because Mayor de Blasio has said if we have a citywide 3% positivity rate over a rolling average of seven days, that the schools would shut down. Coincidentally, for most K-8 students, school started Tuesday. By the time you hear this podcast on Thursday, high school will have started. And it's not looking that great that we're going to make it through October without shutting back down. So we've got restaurants open again, inside dining with 25% capacity, schools here, and a sense that a big second wave citywide may already be looming. It seems to already be in several neighborhoods in South Brooklyn, a lot of neighborhoods that supported Trump, a lot of neighborhoods with religious Jews, and it's not clear what shoe is going to drop next. Chrissy, how are things looking to you? Well, Harry, we talked about, I think this is over the summer, we talked about the possibility and the probability of thousands of New York City school children going back to school and then needing to close said schools, thus throwing parents into a whirlwind of what they're supposed to do for their children's education, not just for the fall, but possibly for the spring. Because what it seems like is happening, we are not a ghost town. There's still quite a few people in New York City. But it seems like each week more people are telling themselves that COVID is over, even though there's no vaccine and nothing has changed except for the belief that people want things to change. I think what's also contributing to that is quite a few people who have had COVID and have tested positive for antibodies just say, well, I've got the antibodies, so I can essentially go out and hang out with multiple groups of people to say nothing of what you alluded to uh, with particular communities who are somewhat insular, who just are ignoring guidelines and convening in large groups uh, and having weddings and birthday parties and ignoring what we know is a very real threat. So there's no confidence in the mayor or the school's chancellor to set forth a vision for protecting not just children, but also teachers and support staff at these schools. So I think a lot of parents, if you're not prepared already, you should be prepared to possibly have emergency homeschooling by Columbus Day or possibly sooner. It's striking how we're repeating the earlier failures of the city's coronavirus response, actually at this moment when the test rates here continue to be well below the national average, either because we got hit sooner or because of the quality of the response. It's honestly, it's very hard to say, but we're again talking about uh, police enforcement, which became a tremendous mess the last time it happened as, as this got used very selectively and aggressively. And now that's supposed to be returning. We'll see whether or not that actually happens 
and whether or not the city has any more ability to control things now. The last time de Blasio was concerned about the ultra-Orthodox and skeptical, who are a group he has a long relationship with, going back to his time on the city council, he sort of took pains not to say who he was talking about, which seemed absurd, and then uh, sort of went off somewhat out of the blue about the Jews, showed up personally at a wedding to break it up, and I think seeded even more suspicion inside of these communities about whether or not they had to listen to him. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this is the guy we don't trust. And that's a very ominous starting place for trying to get a handle, you know, on this public health issue. Now, um, of course, all of this is happening as Governor Andrew Cuomo is about to have his book come out on how he uh, beat the virus, <laughs> which uh, too soon, sir. Because it's all about him, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, his last book sold uh, approximately 12 copies, you know, and he got a few hundred thousand dollars more or less directly from Rupert Murdoch for writing it. I don't believe he had to return that advance. But my my big concern right now is I've, I've given up on a serious and sustained leadership from this mayor. I don't well, see I... who it's going to come from going forward. Uh, Cuomo talks about New York frequently. Sounds almost like Trump. Like th things are terrible there. What's happening? They can't even get the trash. Like he has no agency over any of this. Talks around the MTA talks around policing issues like, like very much like Trump. It's like he's a sports radio caller. Right. Than I take responsibility for nothing. I mean, Harry, can you please, I mean, you were like my favorite journalist. Yeah, I'm saying it on the podcast. Sorry, all the journalists who listen, but you're my favorite journalist in New York. I'll take it. Can you please write the book comparing Trump and Cuomo? To me, they're the same person. They're like twins separated at birth. I mean, they're both these boys from Queens with crippling insecurities terrible daddy issues, just an inability to ever see a problem as their fault. They remind me of just like a set of twins that were sort of separated at birth, yet raised in captivity at the same time. Like, it is just the most odd pairing of the two of them. They both love bullying in various ways. I do think that Cuomo was a touch more of a public servant than Donald Trump, for sure. But their inability to take real responsibility for things, their inability to see sometimes humanity and just point a finger and say, ooh, that's messed up. Somebody should do something. Somebody meaning you, executive. You're just kind of keeping a seat warm, Cuomo. Like, what are you, where's your vision? What is your passion? Besides torturing the mayor, who's highly problematic, by the way. But like, besides that, I don't really know what, what excites Andrew Cuomo. I mean, the Second Avenue subway is the most colossal waste of time and money that I've ever seen. And he doesn't even ride the subway. He like puts on his little choo-choo hat and like, you know, goes and takes some pictures. But like, what does that mean for like working class New Yorkers or middle class New Yorkers who are swiftly becoming working class and poor New Yorkers because of the, the ineptitude of leadership at the federal and state levels? To say nothing of the local level as well. Don't want to leave out de Blasio. But I think that there needs to be a book that compares the behavior of Cuomo and Trump during these past three, four years and how they're obsessed with sort of pictures of them doing great things. But once you scratch the surface, you realize it's like, okay, where does that leave us as a state and as a nation? 
I'm so curious what happens to Cuomo if we have a uh, Biden presidency and a Democratic Senate. I'm sure that he would like to be very roughly the uh, LaGuardia to uh, Biden's FDR. Mm-hmm. Given the hole we're in locally and nationally with the economic shutdown and the virus, I'm not sure that holding breath for that is going to go well, although clearly we're looking at at very large, many billions of dollar holes in both the state and the city budget already. And uh, some relief from Washington would go a long way. In the meantime, nobody wants to really discuss how big these issues are, even as there's basically no commercial occupancy in Manhattan right now, right? Offices are about 10% as filled as they were, mm-hmm. which is way below the national rate and way below other big cities. And that's with, until right now, a much lower positive virus rate than in most places. So if New York bounced back pretty easily, financially speaking, from 9-11 even, with the help of uh, some short-term lending and a tax hike from Bloomberg, and then in 2008, when the zero interest rate policy that maybe screwed up the country in a bunch of ways, but it it gassed up New York since finance is based here, we could be in for a much longer, harder hit. And then the weird thing to sort of connect this is, look, de Blasio has been the the ultimate roadkill mayor. The progressives loathe him. The conservatives loathe him uh, as he's tried to hold some sort of balance. Uh, Cuomo It's been somewhat more successful just in raw political terms so far doing that, but is facing a lot of the same pressures. And there's, I think, a very real chance that uh, New York City and then New York State are going to shift all the way to the uh, left and that this is going to happen at the same moment when this huge ride up from Wall Street that that has lifted all all boats to some extent Mm -hmm. ends Mm -hmm. and there isn't enough money to go around with or without a millionaire's tax, with or without more borrowing, that we're just not as rich as we'd been and have to adjust to that. So I think Cuomo is just trying desperately to hold some balance while he can. And uh, things are are starting pretty clearly to get away from him. Uh, The last thing I'll say is I I just look at his people. I look at Rich Azapardi and Melissa DeRosa on, on Twitter, who are both very smart people. And the extent to which their operation, and Trump has this, de Blasio has this, and these really are parallel, that their people are there not to engage with the press, but to dunk on the press and often on other politicians. You know, are you drunk? Are you stupid? Mm-hmm. Uh, so- sorts of responses that it's a bullying and hard push operation is really remarkable. And I think a, a tremendously unhealthy development. But it's, I mean, that, you know, a culture of bullying is is contagious. And if you have an executive who responds to it and respects it, then you see people who work for said person doing the same thing because it's, you know, first of all, it's abusive behavior. uh, And we know that, you know, that's how abusers reward people for mimicking that behavior. My concern is over the next year or few New York City will hit some real financial constraints. I mean, we've already started to see, even before COVID, uh, the number of retail spaces that were empty. I mean, on the Upper West Side, it, it was like I counted one day walking from Columbia all the way down to Fordham, and it was two closed businesses on each side of the street every single block. 
And that was just me doing an informal, just, I was curious as to, you know, how many closed buildings were there. So we know that it's so much larger than that now in this COVID reality that we're experiencing. But I think my concern is that in the next few years, New York City will be strapped for cash. New York State will be strapped for cash. You know, these tax breaks to the rich don't, (laughs) they don't pay for themselves. Somebody's got to pay for them and, and it's us. And what does that mean for the future of cities when this is the time that we should be investing and putting money into innovation to help us really move solidly into the 21st century, the way so many European cities have already done. And we're just not there. We're not there environmentally to protect us in case we have another hurricane. We just don't have a vision. And I think when we have someone like de Blasio who didn't present a vision when he was running for re-election, like when it comes to either climate change or utilization of spaces, we still haven't figured out Rikers. We still haven't figured out these damn horses in the park. Like, that's still on the table. <laughs> Can we just circle that square, please, and figure that out? So I understand, I understand, you know, issues are way more complicated than they seem on the outset. I'll give you that. But I'm really worried that we're going to get back to the 60s and 70s where people essentially say, well, cities are dead because they're filled with poor people and colored people and the rich have enough money to sustain themselves and have pretty much a, a normal life in their little tiny enclaves, but everything else kind of starts to crumble. And if we don't have leadership at the state level or finances at the state level, we already know that people look at cities as drains, even though cities are the ones that prop up most of the states. So as someone who's an urbanist who cares about the future of cities, I just think that a lot of the planning and investment that we should have been doing uh, these past eight years, we have not done. And we're going to be caught flat-footed when real economic challenges come and we don't have any plans or backup plans or creative ideas in the hopper to help us ride this out. And so the, the link that I gave you was Esther Fuchs, my mentor slash advisor from Columbia, who wrote a book in 1992 called Mayors and Money. And it's a reflection on Chicago and New York and their fiscal troubles. But I think it's worth a revisit just because I, I see some of the fiscal troubles coming down the pike. So the Esther Fuchs book is Mayors and Money, which I have just ordered and has been on my uh, two read list for years. I believe my brother stole my copy. Okay. He can address that on his podcast. (laughs) Harry, am I going to have to roll up to another podcast? (laughs) Like, I want Harry's book back. (laughs) As a younger sibling, I'm fighting on behalf of all younger siblings. You stole Harry's book. (laughs) I'm the older sibling. I'm the older sibling. Absolutely the villain in this equation. All right, then totally. I'm not going to roll up. Like, younger (laughs) siblings have to stick together at all costs. So, like, no, your book is stolen. That's just how it goes. Too bad. And stay, staying with the uh, with the 1970s for a minute, on Tuesday, Mike Tomaski and I spoke with Eileen Marque, who is the editor of Without Compromise, a new collection, incredibly the first of Wayne Barrett's writing. Um, I suspect many listeners know, but Wayne Barrett was a columnist at the Village Voice for about four decades and was the first reporter to really key in on Donald Trump. Uh, He wrote two massive pieces about the Trump family in 1979, and he stayed on Trump. He wrote literally the book on Trump, which flopped when it came out, 
because Trump seemed like a, a loser and an afterthought at that point. His casinos were going bankrupt. His airplane had gone bust. He was trying not to go bankrupt, and he seemed like yesterday's news. Of course, that's not how things turned out. And Barrett stayed on this story. He was a real muckraker and a reporter who uh, did not stop and uh, who, you know, haunted many New York characters, many administrations uh, would just dig and dig and dig and find documents and connect dots and tell stories. And Mike, who worked with Wayne at The Voice, and I, who uh, edited Wayne later after The Voice fired him, and I was briefly hired as his replacement, which is its own story, with with his blessing at The Voice. I ended up editing him at The Daily News and The Daily Beast. Uh, we sat down with Eileen Marquet to talk about the book, and it's pronounced Marquee, not Marquet, about Wayne, um, about uh, Donald Trump, and uh, you know the state of American, American journalism now. So... Let's give a listen. We've been looking into a world where only the greed is magnified. The actors are pretty small and venal. Their ideas are small, never transcending profit. In it, however, are the men elected to lead us and those who buy them. And in it, unhappily, are the processes and decisions that shape our city and our lives. That was the uh, late, great Wayne Barrett. Writing in 1975, actually concluding two-part piece about Donald Trump. In 2020, those words are the epigraph of Without Compromise, the brave journalism that first exposed Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and the American epidemic of corruption, a new collection, incredibly the first one ever, of uh, Wayne Barrett's journalism, along with essays about him from a who's who of the New York and National Press Corps. Uh, The book was edited by Lehman Professor of Journalism and investigative reporter Eileen Marquet, a former Barrett intern. Hi, Eileen. Thank you for uh, joining us. Great to be with you guys. Eileen, thank you for joining us. And let's jump right in. Could you just tell us how this collection came together, your role in it, and why these old clips are still relevant now? Yeah, thanks. So poetically or tragically or um, just trying to kind of get our, our words around it, Wayne Barrett died the night before Donald Trump was inaugurated as president. Uh, He'd covered him from way back in the late 1970s. He wrote a book about him in the early 90s. And he obviously covered that campaign as Wayne as Wayne was dying. He was covering the presidential campaign of of Donald Trump. Um, And then he's elected. And then Wayne dies the the night before inauguration. There was something, you know, there was something poetic and terrible in that. And obviously so many people grieved that. And I think grieved it in this, you know, this is a friend and a mentor to hundreds of New York journalists and, and to many other people. But it felt like something more than that, too. It's hard to remember now, four years later, exactly the, um, you know, the the fear and dread going into the beginning of this presidency. You know, we're all worn out by it now. But anyway, coming out of that mixed grief, both for the loss of our friend and mentor and really the loss for the country, people got together and it, and said, we should, we should put together a book. Like Wayne knew all this stuff about Trump way back when. And so we should put together a book so that other people can read it. You know, journalism has gone through so many changes, obviously forever, sure. But in the last 20 years, in the last 10 years, and the sort of work that Wayne did is harder and harder for most of us to do. And so there was some idea that we wanted to preserve his work, make his work available to other people, really kind of say, hey, look, like Donald Trump's not new. This guy had his number before some of us were born when I was a little kid. 
And we wanted to say like, hey, look, journalism matters. This is what serious journalism is. These are the values that can animate really good, significant, hardworking journalism. Uh, Michael Tomaski here. Hi, Eileen. Um, so how did you come to take the lead on the project and how many hours did you spend sifting through 40 years of, of Wayne Barrett bylines? So um, Barrett was forced out of the voice. He landed at what was then called the Nation Institute, which is now called Type Media Center, Type Investigations. He was a fellow there. And so when we started thinking about should there be a book or like, I guess kind of before that, when we started thinking about like how to preserve Wayne's legacy, it was let's raise some money in his honor. There was so much attention, so many like beautiful eulogies after he died. Um, let's raise some money to fund this kind of investigative journalism, which is slow and tedious and might be six months of work before you get a freelance paycheck for 500 bucks. Um, so we, there was an advisory board and me and a bunch of other people, uh, and frankly, a bunch of people with bigger names than I uh, were on that. And then the idea came after funding a few pretty great projects that way. The idea came, well, let's make a book, actually. Yeah, and Fran asked me to do that. So, of mm -hmm. course, I would say yes. Fran is Wayne's wife. Yeah. So, I had interned in 97, the Rudy's re-election campaign. Uh, it was the summer and fall that I was there. And, you know, and like many people, kept in close touch the following 20 years. So how was interning with Wayne? And then can you talk a bit about going through having to weave New York, incredibly enough, to uh, to go through his, his papers in the course of putting this together. There used to be a slogan for the Peace Corps. The tagline was something like, the toughest job you'll ever love, which is always how I've thought about interning for Barrett. You know, most of us were college kids when, when we would have that job, or maybe right out of college. I was, I was going into my senior year at Fordham. It was an incredibly difficult, demanding job. He expected that you knew every like sub-commissioner from the Koch administration and that he could refer to them sort of parenthetically and you would, of course, know where to get them. Um, and so it was nerve-wracking, but incredibly exciting, right? Incredibly exciting to go into the Village Voice and be with this amazing old investigative reporter who seemed like a character from the movies, but in fact was real. You know, and anybody who's, who's worked with Wayne, I think, has this sort of bipolar experience. He was an incredibly tough boss. He screamed at you. He yelled at you. Um, he was shocked that you didn't know things that it, it really would be kind of impossible for a college kid to know. But, you know, Gonerman, Jen Gonerman from The New Yorker was talking about this the other day. There was a faith in that. He valued you enough to expect that you should be able to know this sort of thing and valued your potential and the importance of what journalism is that he thought, yeah, well, I'm going to train you to do that because of course you can jump that high. And you're going to by like noon. So anyway, it was it was a great experience. And it definitely, you know, made all of us far better reporters, I think far better sort of thinkers. And um, being able to confront difficulty and not shrink from it and not be wounded by it, but instead like, right, okay, yeah, okay, well, I will read faster. All right, then let me figure that out. One of the lessons that stayed with me is how far you would go for a fact that would end up as like a parenthesis in a column, you know, there were three or four interns or five interns at a time. We're all working for full bore on things. And then his 1200 word story comes out in the voice two weeks later. And you realize that the thing that you had spent like a hundred hours on was a clause, right? It was like getting the documentation for a clause in one sentence. And that made me realize that like getting the facts straight is really important and might be worth three weeks of work to get each little bit right so that you can put the pieces together. Um, so then fast forward to putting this book together, 
so Wayne, you know, famously actually worked mostly from home, kept a paper filled office at the Village Voice, but was always in his house in Windsor Terrace and had this narrow office on the second floor that was completely full of filing cabinets. And then in the basement as well, tons and tons and tons of files. So when he died, um, his wife and his son, Mac, wanted to figure out what to do with these papers and knew that they were valuable. So the University of Texas, the Briscoe Center for American History, has a special collection on journalism, um, on American journalists. And so they were able to, you know, they're an archive with the, the wherewithal and the funding to be able to take a massive collection like that and properly document it, properly sort it, put it in boxes, have it in acid-free. So now if you want to read Barrett's papers, you go to Austin, which is doesn't seem right at all, you know. And, and like a series of people have been down there. I know Andrea... Bernstein went um, before me to do some stuff for Trump Inc. You know, other people have gone in to look at the papers. And so it's this really surreal experience because he was a, I mean, Wayne grew up in Virginia, but he was certainly an incredibly New York character by town. Many of us knew him, a really Brooklyn guy. Um, And here you are in Austin with this, you know, postmodern architecture and like perfectly climate controlled room and it's silent as a pin and nobody's swearing. And you're, you look through these boxes and here is the history of New York City. So I found it, yeah, I write about this in the essay, um, you know, really moving. The thing that Barrett did is that he dug and that he knew there was a piece of paper out there somewhere that could prove the point of his story, right? And that could that could put together each little piece to say, hey, this guy's a crook and look, I got six inches of file on it. And so in, in putting together the book and realizing we had to have like sort of a theme in it, it's not just like, here's a couple of Wayne articles. Um, I felt like I was on that sort of a quest, right? I spent the summer of 97 looking for a, a concrete permit from the Queen's courthouse because of who who's the notary, I think, on that permit, and that would prove something. Um, and then I spent last year reading all of his columns, reading many, many hundreds of his columns, and then going to Texas looking for this. Well, what drove this guy? Why was he like this? Uh, why was he so relentless? Why was he able to keep that fire of righteous rage going for 40 years so it was great to dig through boxes for a week and and find all these notes and find all these little scribbles on his pads and call so and so and you know phone numbers for this person and you know the point was to to try to if you get close to the stuff if you hold the physical things um maybe i would come to understand something a little bit more about what drove this great reporter Give listeners a sense of the impact of his work in real time. I, I just looking through the table of contents, I remembered so many of these pieces so well, and I remember specifically how they landed and, and what kind of impact they had. And uh, that was a real lesson for me to see the power of you know really well done journalism that uh, you know it, it's it's uh, so rare to see. Sure, I wish I had a tally of um, you know grand juries and paneled. Um, investigations opened. I was just watching this morning an old a video of him on Charlie Rose when he was promoting the Trump biography back in the 90s. And, um, and he refers there to, you know, to a federal investigation being opened into Trump's stuff in, in Atlantic City uh, and whether he lied to the Gaming Commission by withholding some documents. He wasn't ultimately prosecuted for that, but there is, you know, here was this biography in 1990 that was seemingly the first time that Trump had been investigated in that way. And that's because of the reporting that Barrett did. Yeah. I mean, that kind of would have been a fun appendix for the book, right? If we'd done that, yeah. that type of research, how many people get phone calls the day, you know, the voice used to come out on a Wednesday, right? 
how many people in the DA's office would get calls, how many ADAs would get calls that next morning. Uh, hey, have, do we have anything on this? Are we looking into this? You know, the, one of the famous ones is, is Alan Hevesy, who Barrett wasn't the only person reporting on him, but but he certainly reported on Hevesy and his uh, misappropriation of public funds doggedly and forever. One of the fascinating things about that is that he and Hevesy remained friends. <laughs> Hevesy visited him in his last years. It's kind of an amazing thing. But yeah, so, you know, Barrett had this great line in one of his essays at, uh, I think, the 50th anniversary of The Voice, where he said, we thought a deadline meant we had to kill somebody by deadline. All right. That we had to like deliver the carcass of the politician who'd been stealing from the public wheel and, and have them almost like an indictment ready. Right. With with that. This is what this reporting can do. I think that is one of the things like there's a, a tremendous optimism, I think, in Barrett's way of working. That's not my natural tendency. But in spending a lot of time trying to be in his head this year, I realized that you can't do this sort of work that he did week after week, year after year, with this sort of, you know, rotating cast of crooks without a, a clearly without joy in the hunt, right? He enjoyed doing this work. He liked finding the piece of paper. He liked being able to connect the dots, but also a belief that it matters and a belief that it would come to some good just getting this stuff down. I guess really thinking about some of the, the Donald Trump reporting from 30 years ago, it didn't get Donald Trump locked up in 1980 or in 1990. But as we saw time and time again in the last four years, it was the foundation on which all the investigations, journalistic investigations of the last four years were founded. Every time there was some great Times piece or some great Washington Post piece or some great piece you guys did, it was always, as Wayne Barrett reported in 1979, right? And then pulling more threads. So there's this great impact on the work in that he's documenting the history so that if we're smart enough, we can go back and look at it. There's this impact in like, yeah, there are people who went to jail because of the reporting that Wayne did. Uh, and there are certainly many ADs who had harder mornings and U.S. assistant U.S. attorneys who had harder mornings because of the work Barrett was doing. And then there's the impact of just day in and day out saying that the truth matters, that facts matter, that it's not all spinnable that actually there's things we can know and we can work hard to find them. And, and that seems sort of out of step with the time to believe such a thing anymore, but that's absolutely drove Barrett. I'm going to find out what's wrong. I'm going to tell people about it. And I believe that that is necessary for democracy. I know Wayne was very frustrated in 2016, going to visit him, talking with him, editing some of his last pieces about cable news and that he felt like there was some lag between what was getting discussed nationally and what was already known and what had been reported. I didn't know how, how seriously to take that at the time, quite honestly. And in hindsight, you know, that, that, that really stuck with me. And, and with, with this passing, the number of stories involving Trump's taxes, his finances, you know, we're recording this right after the Times finally mm -hmm. got to some of his federal taxes that he sort of indefatigably did this work. Mm -hmm. And yet a guy like Trump, who he'd, he'd sort of nailed decades ago and again and again. And when the book came out, by the way, his Trump book originally was a bit of a flop because Trump, really? right. Trump, Trump was a loser. Trump had flopped by then. Yeah. Right. It was in a, a periodic flop. Yeah. I interrupted you though, Harry. I, I was working on bringing that to a question. You know, but I've, I've thought a lot about this. Wayne had some of his papers digitized, and he shared those with, with a number of journalists, including myself, before he passed. I know that Rudy Giuliani's oppo file, for instance, which I don't believe was in the PDFs, 
but that was in Texas and city limits reported on that a few months ago. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Which was Rudy going through all of his conflicts of interest, which seem incredibly prescient 25 years later in terms of the money he was making. And this was after he'd started originally running for mayor, right? In 1989, he had his team 493 put together this doc titled Ruthlessness that City Limits ended up publishing, going through all of the corrupt and creepy things he was doing and all the money he was making. And, and this this was, I think, buried in Wayne's files. Yeah, well, it's right. It's two things, right? So I went to Austin last October, um, really, really missing Wayne and finding it really bizarre to be in like a, such a sunny place. And in there's 294 boxes, I think. Yeah. Which, of course, I couldn't read in a week, you know, but, but you're just sort of like racing through things. It's like, oh, this is that. Oh, my God. Oh, hey, look at this. This is by River Ravage. Oh, look at that. Here's this thing on Morgenthau. Wow. Okay. And there's not really an index, right, with how yeah, this is set up. At that point, it was new. Like, there may be by now, and eventually there will be, but there wasn't then. It, they had received it and made sure that it wouldn't, like, set a fire or rot, but they had not yet indexed it, it or very, very rudimentary. So it was, it was quite a fun fishing expedition. Um, But anyway, in in one of those boxes is, oh, look at this. This is the opposition report, which of course, all of us who are New York reporters, right? Political people have like heard of that forever. Like, right, Rudy did this crazy opposition research on himself. And it's full of like all of Rudy's deepest secrets and weirdnesses. And there's actually one subtitle that was called that, the weirdness factor. (laughs) Rudy Giuliani's a weird guy. What will the electorate think about that? Um, so anyway, th- yeah, that that's in Texas, and that was a pretty awesome thing to stumble on. City Limits then, months later, in through a different route, um, an old source was literally cleaning out his closet somewhere in the Bronx. And I was like, oh, hey, would you be interested in this? <laughs> uh, which, is, which is, you know, maybe why it's good either to save things in your closet or clean them out once in a while. You don't know what you're going to find. Like literally the guy was moving and he was like, Oh, look at this. It's that Rudy Giuliani file. Um, but yeah, I mean, but the point is that Barrett had it right. All, all the rest of us had heard about it. Um, and there was a redacted version that had gotten out, like some pieces of it people had, but of course Barrett had had the whole thing because of uh, working on the, you know, on the Rudy biography. Uh, let's talk more about Rudy. Wayne, was on to Donald Trump from the very beginning. With Rudy, it was uh, more complicated and, and a different kind of journey. Uh, I met Wayne in 1989. I did not yet work at The Voice, but I met him during that mayoral campaign. He was pretty much a fan of Rudy at that point. He did end up voting for David Dinkins because of his belief in, in Black empowerment and civil rights, but it was a close call for him, I remember. Then I joined The Voice a couple years later. And so I was there to watch Wayne's disenchantment. So why don't you talk about like why he was a fan of Rudy in the first place and then what went sour. And then I guess what went really, really sour (laughs) a few years later. (laughs) So one of the things that's great about this book is that it's um, that there's all these essays by all these great reporters and writers in it. So it's, it's Barrett's writing um, in in a few different sections of his career, from Trump to old crooks from the 80s, whose names you might not remember. It's a city for sale era stuff, Koch administration stuff, but also, you know, New York political machine things, right? Um, and then there's obviously a big section on, um, it's called Prince of the City, on, on Rudy Giuliani and this long love-hate affair between these two guys. 
Um, and, and then there's a section on Bloomberg and then there's a section on Trump coming, coming to roost. The section on Rudy begins with a great essay by Tom Robbins that really nobody could write better than Tom Robbins. Right. Um, Tom, a, a really, really close friend of Barrett's, a colleague at The Voice for many of those years, um, and somebody who also covered the same span of New York City. Yeah, Barrett was smitten by Rudy Giuliani in the in his early iteration, right? He, he was this righteous, straight arrow young prosecutor who was getting the mob out of Fulton Street Market, who was uh, breaking up the political machine, breaking up the boss system one after another. And Barrett and his, his mentor, Jack Newfield, had spent a decade trying to show the mendacity of the clubhouse politics and what a disastrous impact they had on life in the city, what a stranglehold they had on electoral politics, how their power absolutely did not serve the needs of the people in the communities in which they actually, in which they pretended to live. None of those bosses actually lived in the districts they were supposed to live in. Uh, And Barrett has some great articles on that, actually. But so here was Rudy Giuliani, this young U.S. attorney who was going to clean up the mob and break up the clubhouse. Uh, And Barrett loved him. Barrett thought he was great. Barrett believed that he was righteous and true. And, you know, Tom Robbins gets into this, Tom Robbins is like a thoughtful and lovely guy and like, so not uh, an exaggerator. Um, I think it gives them a lot of power to talk. You know, they grew up similar in a lot of ways. Barrett and Rudy, same generation, this like Cold War Catholic thing. There's, there's a certain, there's some good stuff in that. And there's a certain like rigidity in it um, that in the early years, I think Barrett thought that Rudy was, I mean, clearly Barrett thought that Rudy was better than he was. Barrett had this belief that Rudy was virtuous. And then over the course you know, very early, honestly, right, because that 1989 mayoral election was so ugly and was so clearly racist, right, that, that Rudy was clearly pulling out, I am the white ethnic candidate, um, I deserve, you know, I deserve to be mayor, that, that cop cop riot. Um, that turned something in Barrett, but he still believed that Rudy could be a good a good leader uh, and that Rudy had the right ideas about corruption. Um, and then the, Rudy's three terms in office sorry, Rudy's two terms in office, sorry, I'm thinking about the next guy, um, were just this, like, endless breakup, uh, endless breakup affair. And, you know, the pieces I put in the book, a lot of them are uh, Barrett calling out Rudy's policies as racist policies, not only the policing ones, really, but the budgeting ones. So Giuliani takes office, and then it's in his, in his first in his first morality, it's the Gingrich revolution. And so the whole federal budget picture totally changes. And really the sort of conversations, the sort of meanness you're allowed to do in public absolutely changes. And Rudy walks right with it. And Barrett keeps writing these almost plaintive, right? Totally fact packed, but also plaintive columns saying, Rudy, you're better than this. Rudy, don't do this. Rudy, you could be more than this. Um, and that tracks, I mean, it, there's something, yeah, it, it's, it's heartbreaking, right? Right up through, you know, God, it's all so long ago now, right? But Rudy's like explosion around the Senate race and the cancer and the publicly announced divorce in a press conference. Barrett writes on all of those things. Um, Each time it's like he's trying to like pull out the better man he once knew within Rudy Giuliani. And in the end, there isn't a better man inside Rudy Giuliani. 
and Barrett comes to accept that or sort of mourn that and, and write clearly that way by the end. I mean, one of the pieces we include in here is uh, Rudy's Five Biggest Lies About 9-11. And certainly his second Rudy book, The Grand Illusion, Rudy Giuliani 9-11, is whew, you know, totally gloves off. Yeah. Um, so in one of these columns, he refers to Rudy as used 9-11 memorabilia salesman. So that, you know, <laughs> he changed how he thought. Yeah. I think Barrett continued to be a person motivated by like a, a really great moral clarity and a belief that public service is a noble calling and a belief that doing the public's work is something really important and really sacred. And he realized somewhere in the 90s that Rudy didn't believe that. So the book is Without Compromise, you should go and order it and read it. Uh, Eileen, do you have just a, a closing thought or suggestion for, for younger muckrakers who aren't going to have a chance to intern with Wayne for, for what they might want to uh, think about and, and take from this as they're going about uh, their work? Yeah. Yeah, it's worth working really hard, right? It's worth, like, suffering for a story, even if it, it the person doesn't email you back, right? You got to go find them. Uh, if the facts are not immediately available on Twitter, that doesn't mean they're not there. Uh, everything is out there. Almost none of it is actually online. The truth is worth working hard for. I think that's what Barrett's life says, is that the truth is worth working hard for. And that this is a noble profession. He was so clear about that, right? He loved being a reporter. He's frustrated with his colleagues. He was frustrated with New York media. He actually wrote a surprising amount of New York media criticism. But he loved being a reporter because he said, we're the only people who get paid to tell you the truth. Uh, and I think that's true. And that's still true. Even in like a very disrupted economic system for journalism, that's still true. We're the only people who get paid to tell the truth. And that's excellent and ennobling if we think about it that way, that we can do better. Uh, the essay I write is about that, that we deserve better. We don't deserve this crap. We don't deserve a president like this. We don't deserve a political discourse like this. We don't deserve um, to be having to talk about the kinds of things we're talking about. Uh, with troops in American cities and, and worrying that the president's not going to hand over power peacefully if he loses. Um, we deserve better than this. And Barrett was always really clear about that, that the, the people deserve uh, honest leadership beholden to the public good. Thank you so much for joining us. I really hope people do go and read the book without compromise. Eileen, thanks a lot. And I just want to say, uh, you know, it was um, a great privilege for me to know and work with Wayne and, uh, you know, I'm so happy to see yeah. him getting the um, recognition that he deserves and that his legacy deserves. Yeah, that's really what it is. That there's there's wisdom in studying this, right? Even if it's it seems like it's suffering a while ago, there's wisdom in in digging into it, studying it, and in kind of immersing ourselves in this level of reporting. It'll make us better reporters, and it might make us think that we deserve more as citizens. So. Thank you guys very, very much for having me. It's lovely. I could obviously talk all day. It's lovely to have to be with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. I'm in. Thank you. F-A-Q. Thank you for listening to another episode of FAQ NYC. I'm Christina Greer. My co-host is Harry Siegel. We'd like to thank our guest this week, Eileen Marquis, professor of journalism at Fordham University and investigative journalist who's the editor of the new book, Without Compromise. As always, we used to tape at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, but this week we come to you from the great borough of Brooklyn. FAQ is also a part of Racket Media and a member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists. 
Alex Brooklyn is our executive producer, and Adam Kamara mixed, mastered, chopped, and put this podcast together. Thanks for listening. Wear a mask.